You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Thanks, Zachary. Uh, Zach's in California, moved back. He's uh, a UNM student and had to go back to home, to home, but so cool that we can uh, still have him be together with us tonight and read for us. Uh, this is weird, guys. Uh, I'm going to keep saying it every week, uh, but that there's going to continue to be weird things that are happening, sound things and whatever. We keep trying to meet weekly and think about ways that we can improve them and uh, make it smoother and less distracting. And so we want to continue to do that. And yet at the same time, uh, I've just been thinking and saying that I'm all right with this kind of feeling like it's barely being held together with like shoestrings and chewing gum or something. Uh, there's not a sense in which we're trying to make this super professional and awesome uh, just because this is not the way it's meant to be. So I think there's a good sense in which things keep going wrong <laughs> on this thing uh, that will just make and create and cultivate a greater longing to just get back together. So thanks for your patience, though, with us anyway. Um, my name is Nathan, if I haven't met you, and uh, things are weird. We're starting to hear trickles of news reports um, that government officials are hoping to begin slowly reopening society. Uh, but yeah, I think we're mostly just kind of settling into the new normal. It's a pretty terrible new normal, even more terrible for some than others. Several of you have been furloughed. You've lost your jobs entirely. You've lost work and income. And for others, there have been smaller but still significant losses. We've now had three quarantine babies in our church with several more coming, depending on how long this, thing's, this thing lasts. And I'm sure you parents will always have the story to tell your growing kid that they were born in, in like total societal shutdown. And that'll be a cool story for their kids to tell or to, for them to tell their kids. But it's still like a huge loss. Like your parents and your closest friends weren't able to come see you in the hospital. There are folks that are still bringing you meals, perhaps, but no one has gotten to come over and just sit on your couch and hold your baby yet. That's weird. Presence matters. Our family has gone to now three drive-by birthday parties. Several of you have drive-by or Zoom baby showers coming up. My three youngest kids, they all have May birthdays, so we're already beginning, beginning to prepare them for an unusual birthday in 2020. And again, these ultimately aren't the end of the world, and they're going to make for good stories for someday. But it really stinks to be a kid and to not have your friends be with you on your birthday. Like offering a gift to someone isn't quite the same when you just like honk your horn and then later have UPS deliver it from Amazon. Uh, but in yet the same way, uh, the end of Colossians 1, the beginning of Colossians 2 is all about presentation, about giving, about presenting something that is valuable and that is meaningful because of presence. Paul's going to continue to work out the implications of what Christ has come to accomplish that we've seen him working through over the past three weeks in this book together. And now tonight, he's going to get to some real purpose statements at the beginning or at the end of chapter one, and the beginning of chapter two. There, there are two very clear purpose statements that you heard Zach read. Uh, and then one more implied one in, in chapter one, verse 22. If you've got your Bible, just maybe peek down at that. Paul's saying that Jesus' work in verse 22 is a, here's a purpose statement, flat out, in order to present you holy and blameless. 
skip down a little bit. Verse 28, Paul is saying his work is flat out purpose statement that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then down in 2.4, Paul says that all of this is so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Or to borrow from verse 5, another purpose statement might be that Paul might present the Colossians as firm and secure in their faith in Christ. So in this section, the Colossians are the birthday present. They are the offering on behalf of the saving work of Christ and then the discipling work of Paul. And presence matters. Paul doesn't just want UPS to uncaringly throw a box of uncompleted Legos on the porch or something. He wants to, he wants the finished work of Christ and then his ongoing work with the Colossians and in, the, in his ministry and in, in his encouragement toward them. He wants all of this to present them as a fully put together, secure masterpiece as unto the Lord. And so in this section, Paul wants the Colossians to be presented to God in three ways, which is how we're going to work through this text together tonight. Presented as blameless, presented as mature, and presented as firm. Blameless, mature, and firm. So first of all, presented as blameless. Right, right picking up right of where we left off last week, Paul was describing the reconciliation of the universe through the blood of Christ, where we saw like a, a new age, a, like there was like a page turn in history in the work of Christ. Well, now Paul's going to continue on. Now, perhaps not so universal, but zooming in a little bit, not universally, but very personally and individually by reminding these, these new Colossian Christians of what they once were. So while undoubtedly some of them are ethnically and culturally Jewish, we know of Jewish presence and influence in this region both archaeologically and then what's from, from what's to come uh, in, later in the letter. In this section, Paul is likely here specifically speaking to these Gentile Christians, these non-Jews who, verse 21 tells us, were alienated from God's covenant blessings. They were separated from God. And then, just like in chapter 1, verse 10, where knowledge of God produces good fruit of good works, which then produces more knowledge of God, we thought about a spiral staircase up, Paul here is going to remind them of what life was like before that led to a spiral staircase down. They were alienated. They were separated from God, which then led to hostile minds and evil deeds, which then led to further alienation, further hostility, utter separation from God. Now, when I think when we hear something like evil deeds, well, well like what do you think of when someone is committing evil deeds? What do you naturally think of? Probably something that like, likely earns a prison sentence. Evil is murder or robbery or assault. And no doubt all of that is evil. And perhaps some of these Colossians, perhaps some of us have been guilty of that kind of evil. But evil in the Bible is a much wider umbrella than our modern understanding. Evil in the Bible is idolatry of elevating created things into ultimate things, of turning gifts into gods of inserting ourselves as the gravitational center of the universe into self-worship, into self-love, and using others, even using God, to get what we want through force or exploitation or through words, through passive aggression, or even in our thoughts, in our imaginations. And so what has Jesus done for these new Christians? They were separated from God. And now what has he done? Well, we saw in verse 13 that he has delivered us out of that domain of darkness, that kind of alienated world of the slavery, of self-worship, of hostility toward God, even the passive and indifferent kind of evil hostility. 
in Christ, God has transferred, for, transferred us to the kingdom of light through the forgiveness of sins. Like a gardener who sees a dying sapling, a sick young tree in diseased soil, and then plucks that thing out of there and transplants it into a new healthy soil that it might actually have life and grow as it was intended. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind here. Back in 22, Jesus has reconciled his people, individual persons now reconciled into a corporate people through his substitutionary death on their behalf in order to, what does he say? Get their sins forgiven so that they won't go to hell? Get their sins forgiven so that they can just now walk the streets of gold or something? No. Well, that is implied in the background. That's not the ultimate goal. Just like we heard in Ben Sauer's testimony last Sunday, what Jesus has come to do has just as much, maybe more, for what he has not just saved us from, but what he has saved us to. The work of Christ, that of transplanting dying trees, shoot a better analogy, is transplanting dead trees into new living trees, free of the former disease, not merely just to get their sins forgiven, so that they might benefit in the future from some sort of like financial, spiritual transaction at the cross or something. Yes, that happens. There is a transaction, but not just that benefits us in the future, but that Christ, through his work on the cross, might make his people holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, will God's people, will Christians ever live lives that are completely free from sin? The side of the return of Christ? No. But Christ has come to make unholy people holy. Growing obedience, growing passion for God, and growing love and greater compassion for our neighbor to turn diseased people into healthy people. Now, of course, this is a slow growth work of God and progression over the course of our life. But like my childhood pastor would often say, it's not that Christians are sinless, but we should through time sin less. Growing more and more forgetful of self and self-promotion and more and more intentionally thoughtful of loving God and loving others in humility for our own joy, for the reputation of our holy God, who himself isn't just like flippantly loving, sometimes going back and forth between love and anger, between selflessness and selfishness. No, this is not the nature of God. We are to be holy because God is holy. We are to live into his likeness. Because the known presence of God on earth is in his people. The reputation of God in heaven is primarily known on earth in the reputation of his people. The love, the mercy, the grace, the kindness of God should be felt and experienced in the world through his people. So we're to be blameless, above reproach. When the world thinks of Christians individually or corporately, they aren't able to identify or accuse them of evil or wickedness. This is what... It means to be blameless or above reproach. Like I'm actually not able to think of anything that I can put my finger on in accusation against this Christian. Of course, if you know of your own reputation, if you know of really any other Christian, this likely isn't the first thing that the world thinks of today when it thinks of Christians. And of course, in some senses, this shouldn't be surprising. Jesus said if the world hated him, it would also hate his people. So the, the world in opposition to Christ will naturally be bent towards also hating his people. But the reputation of Christ and the transforming power of the gospel of grace has suffered throughout the centuries, I think, for two reasons, really. 
One, Christians have just forgotten who we once were, that we were indeed alienated, hostile in mind. And it is only because of grace that God moved toward us in love. We had not earned it. And then when we forget all of this thing, when we forget that we, that it is not holy living that makes us acceptable to God, but it is the holy living of Jesus given to us in love and grace, then we can get super frustrated or angry or dismissive of those who don't live the holy lives that now I am taking so seriously. Why won't they just live holy like I do? Well, holiness can only come after an encounter with love and grace and not the other way around. It is not holy living that brings grace and love. It is grace and love that brings holy living. So I think we can forget about the reputation of Christ can suffer because we get this kind of pride in our holiness or our supposed holiness, our external outward holiness. But also this lack of holy, blameless, above reproachness uh, in the world and the reputation of the church likely comes as a result of ignoring what follows in verse 23, where Paul says, all of this, do all this, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The gospel is both the on-ramp and the highway of the Christian life. It is the front door and it is the living room. It's not just the way that you get in, but it's the, the, the life that we experience now inside the house of God. The love and the work of Christ on our behalf isn't just something that you believe one time and then you just then continue on in your life as it was before. No, it's a total transference of death to life. Or to quote one scholar, there are no Baal worshipers in heaven. Think about this from an Old Testament perspective. Like if one of the prophets, if Joel or Amos or Isaiah came to some ancient Old Testament Israelite and said, like, hey, man, repent. Turn from worshiping Baal, from worshiping idols, and instead come into the full life of worshiping God, of loving your neighbor. Like, what would we think? How would we react if we were just observing in this video camera back in time? If we saw this guy respond with, nah, man, Amos, I'm good. I'm good. One time when I was a teenager, I was down in Jerusalem and I was there at the temple and this high priest, he was like offering sacrifices for sins. And I I sang some Psalms. I repeated a prayer uh, from one of the priests that was there and I got the tingles for a little bit. So I know I'm cool. So I don't really need to do anything. And then, and then Amos might say, all right, you were there. You experienced the, the saving work of God and you got the tingles. Then stop worshiping Baal. And then the guy says, nah, man, I once saved, always saved. Like I got the tingles then. So it's got, it's good to go for from now to eternity. And while it's true that if God has truly transferred someone from dark to light, it's true that once saved, always saved. But salvation and faith in Christ is not a magical incantation of prayer, of forgiveness. Like as long as you say the right words in the right order, then you're good to go from now into eternity. No, faith is believing. Faith is continued loyalty. It's not a presumption on the past, but it is grounded belief right now in the present. Or as B.D. Warfield once said, he says, It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves. 
All right, I'm not, I'm not even going to finish this sentence yet. What I just said might be alarming to some of us. Like that sounds doctrinally incorrect. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves. But how might we finish this sentence? Warfield says, but Christ that saves through faith. You see the difference? It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. This is what we were thinking about a few weeks ago when we contend towards putting our faith in faith. It's just, yeah, I have my faith. Instead of, I am presently and ongoingly trusting in Christ. And it is Christ that saves, not the faith that I had once upon a time in my life that gave me the tingles. Continue on in the faith, Paul says, not shifting from the gospel, not walking into the front door, but then just walking straight through the house, out the back door and through the backyard, and then just living your life exactly the way before. You just walked right through the house of the gospel, had some tingly experience, but then moved on. No, Paul is saying, live with God, park yourself in the recliner, in the living room, into the growing joy of love for God. Live here with his people in the mutual care and encouragement of the church. Jesus has sought you and he has bought you to present you as holy, as a holy offering to God. Of course, given that you continue on in the faith. We do not grow in holiness if we just move on away from the gospel that saves. So where Jesus has come to present us as holy. And now second, Paul works in his continued ministry to present the Colossians as mature. Presented as mature, verses 24 through 29, the the end of chapter 1. Now let's first tackle one of the more difficult verses in the Bible that you heard Zachary read in verse 24. Where Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Uh, I've heard one pastor say that if this verse weren't in the Bible, uh, we would very much likely think that it is heretical. Paul is saying that there is something lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is a difficult verse. It's strange and it's been the source of lots of confusion throughout the centuries. Some think that there's like this fixed amount of suffering left to be experienced in the world before Jesus will return. And Paul is then happy to like draw a bigger section of the pie chart of suffering onto himself. But this would seem to ignore Jesus's promises, especially in the book of John, that no servant is greater than his master. If Jesus suffered, following him comes with an expectation of suffering, not just for the apostles, but for every Christian. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says, not take up your couch. But even a more dangerous theological system comes from a misunderstanding of this verse. When in the year 1343, Pope Clement VI issued the Catholic teaching of a so-called treasury of merits, primarily taken from this verse, which is like a giant bank account of good works that, of course, Jesus made the largest and most significant down payment toward. But then the Virgin Mary, then Paul, the apostles, and then continued saints throughout the centuries in their own prayers and their good works then continue to make deposits into this treasury of merits and from which other Christians now, even in the present, can withdraw grace to experience deeper communion from God. So Paul, Jesus made a considerable and significant down payment in this treasury of merits, but it wasn't all the way. 
There's no, we couldn't figure out or we couldn't get all the way deep communion with God without the works of Paul, without the other works of many other saints throughout the centuries. So now, thankfully, because they've been making these deposits, we can from time to time make withdrawals. Now, this system from primarily one verse seemingly ignores everything that Paul says before and after this about the finished work of Christ to bring full redemption, reconciliation, transference. The Son has brought us to new life with the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is finished. So what is Paul talking about? Well, if it weren't for something similar that Paul says in Philippians 2, I'm honestly not sure that we would actually know what he's talking about. But thankfully, in God's wisdom, we do have Philippians 2, where Paul, he's writing to the Philippians from prison, and he tells them how thankful he is for Epaphroditus, whom they sent. Epaphroditus is a Philippian, the the church there, sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul, to serve him and care for him. And Paul says that Epaphroditus, giving them an update on their man, he's saying he nearly died serving me and being here, risking his life. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, Paul isn't like unhappy with the Philippians. He's not saying that they weren't doing enough to serve Paul, but thankfully Epaphroditus came along and made up the difference to create some treasury of merit that the Philippians could withdraw from and and get credit for on their own. In the context, Paul is clearly just saying that the Philippians weren't able to comprehensively serve Paul. Why? Well, because they weren't there. They weren't present. They were in Philippi while Epaphroditus was sitting here with Paul in his imprisonment. And so... They, in some sense, actually were serving Paul. The Philippians were serving Paul. Their service to Paul actually was complete through Epaphroditus. So in the same way, Jesus' afflictions, his sufferings on behalf of the Colossians, it is finished. The sufferings have done all that they need. It has brought about their full redemption. And now Paul's sufferings on their behalf, act as an extension of these sufferings of Christ, like Epaphroditus's service as an extension of the Philippians' service. So the justifying, the atoning works of sufferings that Christ um, has, has accomplished can be made known in Colossae through the sufferings of his people. The love of God can be made known through the love of his people. The grace and kindness of God can be made known through the grace and kindness of his people. The holiness of God can be made known through the holiness of his people. But Paul here is talking about suffering. He welcomes suffering, not doing whatever he possibly can do to avoid it. Which, But he rejoices in it. And this is just totally unnatural. Self-preservation the the pursuit of felt happiness, the avoidance of anything that is a threat to that, that is one of our greatest instincts. But for Paul, the joy of knowing and following Christ is actually a deeper joy. And not just sufferings brought about by following Christ, but in knowing Christ through the normal sufferings of human life. I've already heard from so many of you that you and your families are knowing and experiencing Christ so much more deeply since this societal shutdown. Would you have ever prayed for it? Would you have prayed that God would send a coronavirus, a pandemic, to keep us in our houses for months? No, we would have never prayed for that. And in fact, we ought to keep praying that that God would remove it as quickly as possible. 
But yet, is there some sins in which we are perhaps thankful for it? Thankful for the ways that God has used this great evil in the world to bring about good purposes. In the same way, as that I've shared before with you from Joni Erickson Tana, who was paralyzed from the waist down at 17 years old because of a diving accident, she says that though she knows it's theologically incorrect, uh, after 50 years of being in her wheelchair, she says that she hopes that she can take her wheelchair to heaven. Though she initially hated it and hated God for years, years, she hated her existence that she was suffering under. And yet now she's learned to love her wheelchair as a stern but compassionate teacher. She says the process is difficult, but affliction is not a killjoy. I don't think you could find a happier follower of Jesus than me. The more my paralysis helps me get disentangled from sin, the more joy bubbles up from within. I can't tell you how many nights I have lain in bed, unable to move, stiff with pain, and have whispered near tears, Oh Jesus, I'm so happy. I'm so very happy in you. God shares his joy, she says, on his terms only. And those terms call for us to suffer in some measure like his son. And I'll gladly take it. Or to summarize how she elsewhere says, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And this is what Paul wants for the Colossians. Forgiven by the sufferings of Jesus, discipled now by the sufferings of Paul, that they might, end of verse 25, know fully the word of God and the mystery of God's love to not just a small nation of ethnic, of an ethnic people group, but the mystery of God's love for the entire world. It's this saving gospel of love that Paul in verse 28 proclaims, he warns, he teaches about. This word warns or admonishes, as maybe some of your translations has, literally means to straighten out. Just as you can maybe imagine like tiny winds or water currents can push a ship off course in just a tiny and unobservable, inobservable way that it then after many days or weeks amounts to hundreds of miles of being off course. And so a navigator is needed to warn, to admonish, to straighten out toward the goal. And what's the goal? What's the goal that Paul wants to warn them, to straighten them out toward? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That we, Paul and his partners in the gospel, might present the Colossian church as holy men and women who despite their circumstances can rejoice in suffering and say, oh Jesus, I'm so happy, so very happy in you. That he might present them as mature, growing trees who are bearing fruit, who are bringing honor to the gardener who has planted, who has transformed, and who is caring for them, even sometimes through pruning shears. It's for this, their holiness, their maturity, that he toils, that he slogs, even now writing in prison with, with what Paul says, I love this phrase in verse 29, with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. That is, he is slogging through life, suffering, toiling, but in a life that is animated, that is empowered by the Spirit, empowered with sustaining and persevering energy. 
In Ephrapol, presence still matters. He is praying and slogging for their holiness and their maturity. But then similarly, now in chapter two in verses one through five, even though he can't be with them, he now wants to, he wants them to be presented as firm. Presented as firm. Now, lastly, chapter two, Paul hasn't yet gotten to meet these believers in Colossae and Laodicea, and it bums him out. He wants them to know how much he's struggling for them. He is suffering and slogging in prayer for them that they might be encouraged. And then I love this phrase, knit together. That is when one person gets stretched and pulled like a thread on a shirt sleeve or in a blanket. When one person gets stretched and pulled, it means the painful unraveling of the whole community. That's not to say that if one of us goes wrong, we're doomed or something like that. that. But that is to say, when one member of the body hurts, the whole body feels it. Rejoicing together and suffering together. That together, the Colossian church and we, Christ church, might reach full assurance of the mystery of Christ. We might reach full assurance of the thing that was formerly hidden and is now a revealed treasure. This word mystery, we don't, we don't really perhaps use it in the way that Paul or ancient writers might have used it. We tend to talk about a mystery or a mystery novel or a mystery movie or something like it's like a whodunit. Who is the one who committed the crime? We have to find out the clues and put together a, um, a conclusion to find out what really happened. This is not the kind of mystery that Paul is talking about. It's more like the cave of wonders in Aladdin. It's always there. It was under the sand dunes there all along. People were walking across it and over it for hundreds of years, perhaps, in that story. We just needed a revealing, an opening to see and experience the wonders that were previously and once hidden. And this is the revealing that God has made in the cross of Christ, the revealing of the formerly hidden that we might experience and know God. And that's the thing, though. The treasure in the cave of wonders isn't a genie that grants us all of our wishes. The treasure isn't even eternal life. The treasure is Christ. The good news of the gospel is that we get God. He is the source. He is the means. He is the goal of the gospel. And we get him forever. Treasures of wisdom, of knowledge, of experience, of joy, of life with him. Many of you saw a quote from Gerhardus Voss floating around this week on social media. Uh, an old Dutch theologian, but listen to this and get ready to have your mind blown. Gerhardus Voss says, for Christians, we can know that God will never stop loving us because he never began. We can know that God will never stop loving us because he never began. This is crazy. The love of God for his children has no end because it had no beginning. It has always been. The tr- this is like the treasure, the deepening cave of wonders type stuff. This is transformational assurance of understanding the love, the eternal love of God for his people. And Paul wants all of it for the Colossians so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Once we begin to understand this transformational assurance, this eternal love of God, then once we are fixed in that now, we're not going to be so easily taken off course. 
deluded with plausible arguments. This is the first hint that there's some bit of negative teaching that Paul intends with this letter to the Colossians. So far, everything has been positive. Positive hopes and prayers, all the ways in which he hopes that they'll continue to grow in their knowledge of God and uh, good works and holiness and maturity and all of that. But what's coming in the next couple of chapters that we get a hint of here is there's some negative correction needed for what he's afraid might be some particular vulnerabilities of these young Christians in Colossae. So more on that coming. But Paul wants for them to grow, and he wants to be with them. But if he can't, he wants nothing more to hear than they are of good order. They are like a platoon of Marines. They are only as strong as the weakest link, but they are disciplined in their care for one another. They're diligent in keeping out invaders that might bring about disunity. He wants them holy. He wants them mature. He wants them to be firm, secure in the gospel of God that will carry them all the way home to get them to the goal or to mix up all of the metaphors from tonight. He wants them to be knit together like a blanket. He wants them not just to be walking through the house, but living in it. He wants them growing as healthy and productive trees that are firm, that are not going to snap with the winds of suffering or of persecution or false teaching. And this is my prayer for all of us as well. That even in this time of unique suffering, suffering that is worse for some of us than others, but still all of us are experiencing real losses but that through all of this, through the, we might experience the finished work of Christ, the ongoing work of the Spirit, the role of the Scriptures, even this book of Colossians, that we might, through all of that, be presented to God as holy, as mature, as firm, secure offerings unto the Lord. This is what I've been praying for you this week, praying for all of us. Continue on. We've got much more to do in the book of Colossians. We took a big chunk today. Uh, I think these these three paragraphs were tied together thematically. We'll take a little bit smaller chunk next week. But go ahead and read, start, begin begin working through chapter two this week as we prepare to come back again together next week. On Zoom. Pretty miserable, but it's okay. We'll do it until we can't or we're allowed not to. But let's pray now together that God would continue to make us secure and firm, mature offerings to God. Oh God, we are so thankful for all that you have done, the mystery that you have revealed, the cave of wonders that has been opened to us. Might we come in, might we understand, might we love and experience and uh, just find contented satisfaction and joy in being with you. Not the things that you can give us or get to us, but that we might get you. Help us to know you. Help us to love you. Help us to be transformed by your grace and that the reputation of Christ might be hallowed, might be made holy, might be made known, might be loved in the world because of an increasing, an increasingly holy reputation of us, your people. And we're so thankful in all that you're doing and will do. We pray that you would make us firm and secure until the end. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www. 
www.christchurchabq.com.